Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time talking with Anne Blair about her recent book called Too Much to Know, Managing Scholarly Information Before the Modern Age, Yale University Press, 2010. Now, this is indeed a book that focuses on um, early modernity, on sort of the the challenges and the opportunities and the developments in managing and writing about and reading about information um, in early modernity, in the pre-modern period. Um, However, there's so much in here that's of interest and of use um, really for anybody interested in the history of information, the history of books, the history of accumulation and authorship, much more broadly conceived than just in the early modern period. Um, We had a great time talking. uh, The conversation ranged um, fairly widely, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Anne. Hi. We're here to talk today with Anne Blair about her recent book, which is a really fascinating book, Too Much to Know, Managing Scholarly Information Before the Modern Age. And that came out with Yale University Press in 2010. Anne, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, this um, this book is both an exceptionally rich history of books and reading and reference materials built on incredibly impressive um, and very exhaustive scholarship, which both exists within the covers of the book and also outside the covers of the book, um, which we'll talk about, um, I'm sure, later on in our discussion. I learned a great deal from reading it, and it's um, it's both that kind of history of reading and books, but also much, much more than that. Um, it's very much a cultural history of, I think, concepts that have emerged around the idea of and built on the idea of information um, and reading and accumulation and recording, and um, it's an exceptionally rich work. So thank you so much. Um, and readers. <laughs> Could you start us off a little bit by saying just a little bit about um, your background? What brought you to this field in general? And then um, as much as you'd like to share with us, how did you come to work on this particular topic? Right. That's, those are big questions. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I specialize in early modern European history. 
And I suppose that started uh, late in my being an undergraduate. Um, and I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland, where the moment of greatest world historical significance was probably the 16th century. <laughs> That's one reason I um, started there, although I have dabbled a little bit in the late Middle Ages. But I think what's kept me staying with the early modern period are a few factors. Uh, one is thanks to printing, there is an abundance of books that really haven't often been looked at uh, that are, say, in Latin, that are, say, pedagogical or not by famous authors, and reference books would be a subset of these kinds of books I'm talking about, which uh, really just um, strikes me as a huge field rich for investigation. So that's kept me busy once I got started in the 16th century. Another thing I really like about the 16th century is the way it sort of recapitulates uh, earlier periods in that the humanists looked back to antiquity as a model to imitate, and they also inherited from the Middle Ages without often acknowledging it, um, all kinds of institutions and ways of working, in fact. Uh, so I see the 16th century as uh, inventing something new, but always looking backwards explicitly to antiquity and tacitly to the Middle Ages. Uh, and of course, it is seen as, you know, the beginnings of the modern in what we call early modern um, for, yeah, for better and for worse. <laughs> so how did I got into this particular topic? I would say, uh, so my first book is a study of and what we might call an encyclopedia of natural philosophy by someone who's best known as a political philosopher, Jean Baudin, a 16th century Frenchman. And in studying that book, I really enjoyed the book historical angles of looking at surviving copies for marginal annotations, signs of readership, or signs of use and classification, especially in the way the copies were bound with other books by the buyers, the owners of these early copies. Binding two books together was a way of saving money because you only paid for one binding for two books, a way of preserving the books, of course, but then it sticks, sticks two books together forever on your shelves. And in fact, that material practice gave me all kinds of insights into works that were very well chosen to match the one I studied in that, for example, they cited it. And I never would have looked in those books if I hadn't had these clues. So I suppose I was left with a strong sense of the values of looking at uh, surviving texts as physical objects, and also with a sense of questions left unanswered in that I studied a particular work and I had gone in interested in encyclopedist uh, thoughts sort of how disciplines interact with each other. Um, and of course, from the angle of a particular work, I didn't really feel I had addressed those questions. So for my second project, uh, this one, in fact, there are, there are a few other little side projects on the way. Um, I, I started off thinking I was going to work on encyclopedias mm -hmm. and in the process of working on it, decided that that term was just too fraught and broad and wasn't getting at the aspects I was most interested in, which were methods of reading. And so I ditched it, basically. I have it boiled down to a tiny section of chapter three, which is entitled The Encyclopedia <laughs> Problem. And mostly I talk about reference works, by which, of course, is a terribly anachronistic term coined in the early 19th century. But I just mean in a very basic way, a big book meant to be consulted rather than read through, which doesn't prevent people from reading it through, of course, but that that's how it was designed to be used. And therefore, it comes with aids to consultation, finding devices typically. Uh, and 
So it's, it's a, and I would say one other factor that motivated this topic was my awareness in working on Jean Baudin in European libraries of the great value of looking at reference books of the time to try and understand the source base of the authors I was working on in the 16th century. And European libraries often made it easier to access a 16th or 17th century reference book than a recent American monograph, um, because some of these reference books were out in open access. They were part of the reference collection, mm-hmm. which really uh, you know, brought home to me that these are still useful books, mainly for historical research. But uh, in fact, many modern reference books, for example, biographical dictionaries, build on their early modern counterparts. And um, these genres are still with us today. And, uh, you know, they, they are really fascinating sources for how people in this period um, digested that overabundance of, of things that they experienced, too. And speaking of the um, theme of digesting and overabundance <laughs> and the abundance of sources, um, especially because this is a study of how to manage scholarly information, and it's built on such um, a really amazingly rich set of primary and secondary sources, um, close readings of texts, um, physical copies of manuscripts. Um, could you say a little bit about your own information management strategy when researching this book? Because it really seems like you're bringing together um, many years and, and, and just an incredible array of individual texts and quotations and, um, and objects here. So how did you keep all of this straight when you were working on the research and writing? Well, thanks. It's definitely a question I um, have thought about quite a bit, and maybe even that motivated the questions I asked in my research, in that, uh, in the words of one historian, Bronislav Bachko, uh, a response he gave me in the French archives when I asked him what he was working on, he said, Vous savez, on ne travaille jamais que sur soi-même. You only ever work on yourself. <laughs> and I am an abundant note-taker, but I also feel constantly inadequate in the ways I make my notes and my information. However, I would say that I've developed somewhat of a system and I'd be delighted to share it with others. That would be great. Uh, it was formed through trial and error and, and many regrets along the way. But uh, basically I'm, I'm quite primitive in that I use, well, I used to use WordPerfect 5.1, but now I use Word and I just create documents in which I accumulate notes. So I have notes for, for primary sources. I usually have one per author. For secondary sources, I have one per broad theme. Um, but the point is, of course, you read lots of things going in different directions and you can't really, there isn't really, there's a sort of a system, but there's always also madness in where a particular work ends up getting stuck. So the crucial uh, tiny device to all this is an index file in which I keep a record of what I have read, primary and secondary, and where the notes are. The name of the file the folder in which the notes are, because of course in the old days, folders were limited, you know, to the size of, I, I had, my folders were the size of a three and a half inch floppy disk, was basically how it worked. And, you know, the file names were limited to eight characters. So, you know, they often, they didn't really, they couldn't spell out uh, all the stuff that was in there. Anyway, so I have that as a bibliographical reference, where the notes are, uh, by author title, basically. But then, as I went along, I started deciding to imitate some of the advice that's given in the note-taking manuals I studied, which is to take notes by thematic uh, topical heading. And so these are commonplaces, right? Mm-hmm. Except that, of course, um, 
they don't have to be common. They can be things that I've decided are of interest to me. So I have another file, which is organized schematically under headings, uh, where I put little notes to myself saying, look in this, you know, this set of notes or this book has interesting stuff on this point. And so these can range a lot. So I would have, you know, obviously I had China and Islam, some big, big topics, but I also had all kinds of cross-cutting ones like, um, oh, I don't know. Well, now I'm interested in, so the use of personal pronouns, for example, or dedications, interesting dedications, mm-hmm. or advice uh, on, um, you know, youth and old age and, and the kinds of notes one takes in various times of life, or quantities, any kind of evidence I had about how much time someone took to do something or how many books they read. I had a special heading called quantities, right? So um, this file, of course, is highly mobile and the, and the labels change and Frequently what happens is I'll find something fun, I'll want to record it, I'll invent a label for what I want to record it as, and of course it'll just stay there sort of widowed. So the crucial part of this management system is really the moment at which you decide, okay, I've done a fair amount of, of gathering up, and now I want to see what I have. And that that's the sort of conceptual moment of looking at the themes I've, I've collected stuff under, deciding that half of them are you know not of interest anymore, and the other half have to be reworked and actually merged and combined in different ways and so forth. That's sort of the key pre-writing stage, I'd say. And do you do any kind of diagramming like um, some of the authors that you talk about later in the book? Or is at that stage, do you print out the document? Or are you able to do all of this by scrolling through at this final stage and where you're kind of, um, in which you're kind of compiling all of your notes? Um, can you do that on the screen? Or do you need a physical copy? Or do you do any diagramming? That's a good question. I think I've proceeded in a lot of different ways, um, you know, for different works of different lengths. Mm-hmm. I don't anymore print out the whole of the notes. I, I did in the beginning, but they got to be quite voluminous. And of course, one of the reasons to print them out was to save them. Now I have, you know, cloud backups and I, I don't know, USB key backups. And so I, I'm sort of less nervous about losing them or less confident that printing them out is a way of saving them, in fact. Um, but I do what I do, and I don't really. Uh, you know, squiggly bracket type diagram. But I do write on pieces of paper that crinkle nicely when you <laughs> write on them. Um, I do, that's where I do my outlining. So I think I do it mainly with, you know, headings and, and sort of using pockets of the page. And then, of course, it gets all messy and I go start over again um, on a few pages. So that that is generally how I actually put things together is by highlighting on a piece of paper the things I really want to emphasize and then, you know, moving them around um, by looking at them and then starting over again with a new outline, I suppose. I have dabbled with, you know, Omni Outliner and uh, Scrivener and, you know, a variety of things, Mm -hmm. but actually I haven't taken the plunge to transferring what is now quite a large, you know, a number of gigabytes of, of notes accumulated since the days of a Toshiba, uh, well, it was a laptop. It was called a laptop. And it had, I don't know, 512K RAM. <laughs> like the same. So it could store WordPerfect 5.1. And then you put your files on the floppy disk. So that's when my, my computer note taking started, just at the beginning of the dissertation, which is really fortunate, actually. Um, the computers got to the stage where you could actually take them into a library. And I could find the one of the few plugs at Bibliothèque Nationale. <laughs> It was a quite an adventure, you know, hunting around looking for plugs. And if you found the plug, you had to make sure you were able to sit there, which is always in the library where you have assigned seats. 
you know, <laughs> careful computations had to go into that. <laughs> but I, I haven't really taken the plunge into something uh, radically different from just Word documents. I just started um, experimenting with Scrivener, and we could we can talk about that later if you want. But yeah, it's um, it's it actually takes a lot of time to try to train yourself to get used to a new system, and I don't know that it's worth. <laughs> that it's worth all the time it takes to train but well time shall tell right exactly exactly how long these systems will be with us too exactly well so this is actually really fascinating and one of the things that's also particularly interesting, and um, this is just in the very first few pages of the book, is that um, there are elements of the book that are actually not within the physical bounds of the book. And that that is, um, you've decided to put some supplementary material so quotations in foreign languages, um, and really extensive material on the print history of two of the major texts discussed in the book that we'll get to um, in a little bit. And these are on your website. Um, this is really fascinating given um, how we understand this as a product of, but both as a, um, a study of information management and also, as any book is, as a product of information management. So can you say a little bit about um, how you made that decision? What prompted you to decide to put those materials um, on the website and how are you finding that? Well, I think this is just a very practical consideration that... Um, Yale University Press, which I was very pleased uh, with the job they did, and, and I've just been delighted, but they did give me a, a non-negotiable word limit of 150,000 words. Mm -hmm. And so my first draft came in at 180,000 words. So the first thing I did was put it on a diet, which is probably a good thing. Now I get 20% in about uh, six weeks besides wow. making the submission. Wow. And so one of the things that went were the foreign language quotations, but other, uh, some pros went to examples, you know, but to too many examples, who needs that many kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I felt that it was actually liberating in a way because um, the foreign language quotations on the web can really just blossom. So I, I have, for example, you know, a two-page quotation mm -hmm. describing that um, note closet, for example. There's no, you know, real limit why I should just quote, you know, two sentences from it or something. I can give you, you know, the, the whole passage, basically. I also wanted to put those quotations on the web for uh, other scholars, of course, but also for myself, because I'm constantly referring back to the Latin or the French, you know, for handouts or um, wanting to, you know, reuse the material for another purpose and not wanting to go back to the quotation. So in other words, I felt this was a, a form of a reference tool of my own, you know, to have it somewhere safe where I could find it, where it was clean. I didn't have to go rooting around in my notes. So that was one reason to do it uh, that way. In other words, not in the book because I just didn't have space for it in the book. I do have an extensive bibliography in the book um, to which the notes are keyed. So I didn't feel I could put the bibliography online, as I know some colleagues have sometimes done. Um, but so I, I put the, um, the primary source quotations in foreign languages. And, um, you know, like I said, I could I could be expansive about it. The other material is um, copies found through an extensive search that actually was partly carried out by a research assistant uh, in online catalogs for extant copies of the books I was studying. And there too, I just thought this was really useful, something I would want to be able to refer to again. And actually, since posting that, I've heard from a couple of libraries whose catalogs weren't online at the time or may still not be online now. And they wrote in and said, oh, by the way, we have some copies of Theodore Swinger's Theatre oh, wow. And so basically once a year in the summer, I've decided I'm, I update those files. 
Um, so uh, I have already made some additions and I look forward to being able to make more. Um, I don't know that I'll, you know, revisit this. I mean, I presume there will be more library catalogs online uh, even in the future. Well, so that's kind of like a crowdsourcing almost. Well, uh, by expert librarians. Right. Humbled on it. Yes. I think, yeah, it's, it's another thing that I hope is a bit of a longer term legacy of that work, although I haven't actually checked for broken links lately, is that on, there's a Harvard website where I have links to all the online catalogs that were used for that research. Mm -hmm. um, of course, some of them change. That's called the Theatrum Catalogorum, <laughs> theater catalogs. Um, so because uh, Morgan Sunderegger put a lot of effort into tracking down minor libraries, obviously KVK and other consolidated search devices were, were certainly the first point of attack. But uh, really, he found lots and lots of um, smaller libraries to, to look at. And, and you find in European libraries, which grow organically, you know, unlike American libraries, which grow for early modern European printed books only by the rare book market. And therefore, you're only going to buy certain kinds of books. Typically, you know, for a long time, it was first editions of famous authors. And obviously now, Houghton Library, for example, is very interested in pedagogical books or um, books that are annotated of any kind. So we have new ideas about what's interesting in a rare book. But, you know, the bulk of American collections are really focused on a, a canonical set of people. Uh, but European libraries are formed by, you know, um, state seizures of, uh, of uh, monastic or other ecclesiastical libraries, for example, or of uh, teaching institutions or of people donating or of their materials becoming absorbed into uh, libraries. Uh, much more organically. So you can find, you know, fascinating rare books in, in basically every municipal library in France, uh, let alone, you know, Germany and Italy and so on. Uh, so that's hence the value of really trying to do something that would go beyond the major libraries. And so partly it's to, to show the, um, the value of, you know, the dispersion of these books. It shows, first, first of all, they were widely owned, even if I can't don't have as much in the way of annotations or citations to prove ownership. Uh, the number of extant copies and the, the range of places where the extant copies are is nice evidence of that kind. Um, and I suppose this is just uh, also um, a practice that I'm imitating from how historical bibliographers used to operate, where they would print a book. For example, the critical bibliography of the works of Jean Baudin, produced by the University of Mons, Belgium. Just as I was finishing my dissertation, which was very crucial uh, in leading me to a, a work that um, circulated under Baudin's name, even though it was, and it was based on Baudin's theatrum that I studied, but it was quite a different work, basically a um, popularization of the Latin work into German. I never would have known about it if it hadn't been for this historical bibliography project, which involved at that stage in the 80s, writing something like 900 libraries around the world wow. asking people to report on a piece of paper what works by Jean Baudin they owned and what editions and all that, and then publishing lists of all these libraries. And so when I came along, all I had to do was look under Theatrum and find the, say, 120 libraries that had reported in the earlier survey that they had copies of Theatrum and then write to them <laughs> with my more detailed questions about what books is your copy found with, is it annotated, can you tell me anything about the ex libris markings, the people who owned it uh, from, you know, local history sources? 
And that was a real treasure trove. I had, you know, wonderful responses from librarians, especially from the lesser libraries where they don't get a lot of scholarly inquiries. Obviously, you wouldn't expect to hear back. And I didn't even write to the major libraries, you know, the British Library, the Liberté Nationale. They're the kinds of places that are over overrun with um, with scholarly uh, requests, whereas the minor ones aren't. And uh, so I really uh, am very grateful to all those people who replied sometimes, you know, from what was behind the Iron Curtain uh, from Poland and, and Russia, Soviet Union. Then I didn't go to at all. I just relied on on the um, the mail information that I got. So so I'm just putting in a new way. And in fact, it's not all that, you know, it's, it's not all that. Um, digital in that it really is just a PDF file that you can download and print. And I have wondered about the longevity of, of my website and this document. And I think in due course, I'm going to print out these um, supplementary materials, have a, one copy bound and give it to Widener Library, you know, so that one somewhere, if someone's really obsessed with finding this, it can be found again. Um, long after that website suffer. <laughs> that's a great idea yeah so in the so now as we get into the actual um, meat of the book the introduction of the book I won't ask you too much about this because this is um, a place where you raise issues that are going to come up later on and we'll sort of get to them in turn. But one of the things that becomes really clear right from the beginning um, is that there is an explicit comparison here between early modern information management technologies and, and in turn the um, those information management technologies upon which they're based. And um, you talk quite a bit about them in the, in the next chapter. Um, but so a comparison between them and technologies of today. Um, this is something, this theme of comparison, um, bringing into dialogue early modern practices with practices that um, the reader will ostensibly be familiar with from his or her own practice, is something that really um, pervades the entire book. Can you talk a little bit about um, whether, and if so, how, that interest in um, sort of broaching this kind of comparative way of thinking about information may have shaped um, your work? I don't think I set out to sort of show the origins of modern information economy. Or I, I always think of myself as just really interested in the past and my, you know, area sort of um, methods of working in the learned world. So these are all sort of Latin functioning humanists, students maybe to all the way to adults. So, it's, you know, it's a pretty rarefied uh, world in a way. But absolutely, as I was you know, looking at these books and using them and trying to understand how they were made, I just, what really struck me throughout was how very much, you know, how very familiar uh, these tools are, how um, we operate using the same basic maneuvers. So in a way, I, I sometimes wondered, you know, is this, have I, have I failed in my job as a historian? When historians are supposed to talk about change over time and, and specificity and all that. And here I am, you know, constantly Seeing similarities, seeing similarities. So I do, I do see differences, of course, and and I, you know, I sort of worked on that part because it's, it's, the similarities are what came first. Uh, and I suppose so. I talk about, you know, what I call the four S's, the, the basic maneuvers of uh, accumulating, so storing. Then, uh, what are you storing? You're storing. You can't store everything, or at least in the act of note taking, you are either selecting, as in quoting 
for summarizing, as in paraphrasing, the materials that you're reading and that you decide to store these selections or summaries. And then you want to be able to recover them again, so you sort them somehow um, using headings, typically, that you expect to remember and be able to use again to find the stuff, just like we now have keywords or, and of course, we store in all kinds of different media, including our brains um, and including ink on paper, but uh, not exclusively. And uh, we also select and summarize and we sort and we, we um, sort intellectually and we use uh, search engines to um, find things. So I suppose the sorting function is, is really radically changed um, by digital technologies. But I think uh, from an intellectual perspective, we still require, uh, you know, to think is to classify, it's been said. And ultimately, we do engage in, in forms of sorting, um, even if we're not aware of it quite as explicitly as when you put things under, you know, in pigeon holes or under index card headings the way one used to. Right. I'm sorry, did I interrupt? Not at all. No, no. So this is, um, this is really interesting. And this gets us into um, the, the next chapter, which takes this kind of implicit, really fascinating comparative, um, I mean, maybe this is a kind of epiphenomenon that comes out of the work, but um, the, the comparison becomes very explicit in the next chapter. And I think a really fascinating way, certainly um, for those of us also who may not work on um, early modern Europe as the context of our research. Now, this chapter surveys the types of reference texts that were produced in a variety of pre-modern contexts, both in Europe and outside of Europe, and really shows the kind of the similarities, but also the differences in the basic methods and problems um, surrounding this larger history of in early modern information management. Now, um, one of the points that you make, I think, quite compellingly here um, is you mentioned that historians have previously emphasized the importance of um, a number of factors, three factors in explaining um, the, quote, information explosion of the Renaissance. And this is um, these are factors that I think many of us may have you know, been familiar with the discovery of new worlds, the recovery of ancient texts and the proliferation of printed books. And one of the really interesting types of work that this chapter does um, is to really sort of argue that there were very important cultural factors that were explaining what's happening in terms of kind of a, a renewed attention to accumulation and to managing information. Um, for, read, for listeners who may not yet have had the chance to read the book, can you talk a little bit about um, what some of those cultural factors were um, that were so important to um, this sort of, uh, really this, we may not call it revolution, but this um, change in the history of information management in early modernity? It's, yeah, it's, um, it's always hard to explain, you know, what's specific about a period. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes worry I overdrew what's specific about the Renaissance. But there is something really new about what survives in the Renaissance, which is multi-volume collections of people's reading notes, you know, manuscripts of excerpts of summaries sorted, stored in, you know, 20 volumes of folio pages or 12 or and these that have come down from us to us from starting basically in the 15th century say Angelo Poliziano was one of the first whose large collection of notes um, was kept 
by him as a note taker, by his heirs, the students, and then, of course, saved by an institution or two along the way so that they're available to us. And we really don't have that kind of bulk um, notes, extant notes from earlier periods. From antiquity, of course, you know, if you took notes on wax tablet, obviously that's a temporary surface. You don't expect it to be saved. And if you do keep your notes um, in a sort of more permanent form for the time on papyrus rolls, as we hear from Pliny the Younger that his uncle Pliny the Elder did in bequeathing to him 166 papyrus rolls of notes, as he says, in a small hand and written on both sides of the page. So that's a lot of notes that he inherited from his uncle. But of course, they took the form of papyrus, which does not weather well, right, beyond a couple hundred years. And so we don't have any extant bulk notes for basic survival reasons. But my point about the Middle Ages is that this is a culture where parchment is the uh, substrate for permanent record. And of course, that's a very durable medium, frankly, even better than paper. Um, and, and yet we don't have bulk, you know, for Thomas Aquinas, for example, um, he doesn't seem to have taken a lot of reading notes. We would know, I think, if, we, if he had, because we have autographed manuscripts by him, drafts of works that he composed. Later in, in his career, he composed by dictation, and we don't have anything in his own hand. But given the stature he reached in his own lifetime, anything he wrote in his hand was treated with special care. So if he had taken a lot of reading notes, I think we'd know of it. Some would survive, or at least we'd, we'd know that he had taken them. So here's someone who obviously was a polygraph, who wrote tremendous numbers of, of books and words in each book, and yet he didn't proceed the way humanist authors often did by first creating a treasury of reading notes from which then you would draw in composing your own work. So I do think there's something new about um, the Renaissance is partially in the form of, well, paper is, is less expensive and people will use it naturally and then find that their notes are savable. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to give due credit. It's not like some sudden change occurred. I'm sure there are late medieval manuscripts obviously survive in greater numbers and often longer. And, and we probably get various forms of private um, records such as letters and, and sort of journals and um, Zibaldone, you know, notes of various kinds already before, um, say, the 15th century. Uh, so it's, it's not a sudden shift, but rather, on the one hand, a gradual transition. And yet I do think the humanists, so those are some of the practical reasons why notes survive um, once they're on paper. And um, But the main reason it struck me that notes survive is because people decided to keep them. Mm-hmm. And to keep them as something worth keeping, worth bequeathing to you. Heirs also treated them not as some old junk, you know, that's done, but as something that they too could use, mm-hmm. that they could draw on, that they could maybe publish under the deceased's name or maybe under their own name, and that certainly did happen. Um, and it's something that they could continue to use as notes themselves. And you can think of multi generational families of scholars where. One of the things you're passing on is an, a scholarly ethos, of course, a bunch of books, but also annotations in the books and annotations, notes in separate manuscripts. Um, so there is this new idea that we want to save and accumulate and keep these traces of reading and thinking of those who've gone before. And I do think there's something specific uh, that's articulated by a number of Renaissance compilers 
which is sort of this sense of a, the great trauma of loss of ancient learning, never again, right? We should never let this happen again. Thanks to printing on the one hand, uh, we will we will save these texts. Um, and, and also just because uh, we want to, even in manuscript, even without printing uh, things, we want to save everything that we come across. I've got a great quotation by Nicolas Fabry de Perez from uh, the early 17th century. It's actually said of him by his biography, biographer, Pierre Gassendi, that basically he could never tolerate that any thought, anything thought, should be lost. So he wrote everything down because some, in the hope that someday for someone it would be useful. And of course, Perez's great specialty was not to publish himself, but to share with his correspondents all the bits that he'd accumulated through his own reading and through what people wrote to him and shared with him. Mm. Sort of this vision of a collective undertaking of creating knowledge, building knowledge, um, through, through obviously reading and judgment and selecting and note-taking, but also through saving and sharing and saving in a collective way, in fact. And that point, actually, that quotation about um, every little thing being useful actually reminds me of one of the points that comes up. I'm not sure whether it's in this chapter or later um, that links that sensibility to um, plants in a garden. Right? Yes. And this sort of metaphor of um, gardening and flowers and plants and growth as it applies to uh, written information is actually something that seems very important Absolutely. to a lot of these authors. Yes. So the garden, the flower metaphor goes back to antiquity. The idea is the flower is the best fit of a text. So a florilegium is the collection of flowers of a text, the collection of uh, sententious, senten, sententiae, the best, most authoritative, most memorable sayings in a work that you would gather up. And that is really the first gesture of these reference books, which often build actually on medieval florilegia, even as they grow much more in the world of print. Uh, so the, that that particular flower metaphor I thought was very lovely in that what the author is saying is, just as in a public garden, you, you may prefer some flowers and someone else prefers another flower, but you don't pick the flowers you don't like. You know, you don't pick any flowers. You have to leave them all for everyone's enjoyment. So too, in my very large reference book, you will find some things to be boring and not of, not of interest, but don't complain about them, right? They're necessary for the public good because someone else will find value in them. And so this idea that right, we, are, we are building together a, um, a huge um, construction and accumulation of knowledge, and there's something there for everyone, even if not everything pleases everyone equally. Right. right. And so you mentioned briefly um, uh, the importance of print. Um, and one of the things that I think the book does really, really well is to take on the importance of the material context of information management and production, but to work against the kind of um, way of understanding the impact of print that would be a simple causal claim of the uh, the impact of a new technology on shaping this um, cultural and uh, intellectual and um, historical phenomenon. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of print here, both what it was and what it was not? Yeah, that's obviously one of the historiographies that um, I found, you know, very interesting to work with. And I think one of the key breakthroughs was um, in that comparative angle, getting to know the community of book historians who do the history of the Asian book, mm -hmm. and in particular um, woodblock printing. 
and to realize really more specifically what's uh, unique to movable type printing, um, you know, both its advantages and its disadvantages. And so if we, so first of all, print is certainly not necessary to make big books. Um, China probably, you know, generated the largest of these acts of compilation, which might, some of them were compilations of selections, but some of them were really compilations of entire texts, which we might better call anthologies. But still, on, on scales that far um, outstrip European compilation scales, sometimes in manuscript only, other times in print, but in woodblock print. Um, and so, and certainly also the Middle Ages in, in Europe generates some very large books, like the Speculum Maius of Vincent de Beauvais at 4.5 million words in my count. Um, and yet print does make a difference in the circulation of the large book. I think historians have often emphasized the, the ephemeral um, imprints, which are very important, especially in that they don't survive very well, so they're easily lost sight of. But indulgences, say, of which there were probably, you know, one million printed by 1500, even though maybe 200 survive now, and which, of course, had a tremendous cultural impact um, in, you know, being one of the factors of driving the Reformation for example. Uh, and yet, so I'm looking at big books and what impact does printing have on big books? And ultimately, what I came to feel was that a in manuscripts, a big book rarely circulates as a whole. It often circulates in the bits that the person who is interested in a copy of the book is most interested in. So you can commission a partial copy of Vincent de Beauvais' gigantic encyclopedia. You can say, I'm only interested in the history bit, thank you. Uh, rather than the natural philosophy or the ethics. And indeed, that is the one of the four sections that's the most um, copied in the manuscript era and the most printed in the print era. Um, so the early printed forms of that encyclopedia were in a single, uh, one, uh, one of the four parts, never all together at first. And yet, even within the history bit, you could say, well, I really only care about, you know, these centuries and not those centuries. So there are many, many partial manuscripts out of the, say, 200, I think, or so that survive. Only two of them are complete copies. And one of them is the author's copy. So, in fact, big books are changed in how they circulate in print from the manuscript era when you, you know, made bespoke copies that could then be tailored to your interests. Whereas in print, you know, you've got to have this whole reference book or none at all. Uh, it's a, you know, a like it or leave it type thing. And then it becomes a contest between making the book as big as possible so you can have something for everyone and attract, um, you know, all these new readers without making it so big that it's so outrageously expensive or heavy, immovable, right, that people can't use it. And so that's really the story of the big book in print is that it, it does get bigger and bigger uh, because more is better and it's something you boast about. It's something you hope to sell the new edition on is that there's more here than in the previous edition and so on. Um, and yet there are sort of also limits, um, which you know, the largest uh, encyclopedia I looked at or reference book I looked at weighs in at about 10 million words in eight folio volumes, very heavy. Uh, and of course, the good news for the historian is they're not easily destroyed. This is not an indulgence that can be wadded up and ripped and used to wrap fish or to light a fire. This is uh, an object that, you know, looks great on your shelves. Your kids will enjoy inheriting it. And if you want to destroy it, you're going to actually have to work at it. Um, yeah. Right. Now, moving from the um, from the very big to the very small or from the complete to the fragmentary, 
one of the things that um, I think is really beautifully done in the next part of the book um, is you're giving us a kind of a survey of the methods and the motivations and the practices of note-taking, both as they shaped the way these compilations were used, but also the way they were produced. Now, one of the really fascinating things about this um, about this topic and about this part of the book is that in creating a history of note-taking, you as a researcher have to decide what constitutes a note, right? And, and you sort of introduce for us the various forms that this can take from, um, wa from a wax tablet markings to markings on sand to these you know, notes on the backs of playing cards or slips of paper. How, in the process of um, working on this, did you decide what constitutes a note for your purposes, and where did you go about trying to find them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, actually, a colleague here at Harvard, Leah Price in the English department, and I are, are running a conference on note-taking, um, which is actually in November, which is actually quite geared toward note-taking today. And we really face that problem constantly about what is a note. Um, so a note is something that is intermediary. It's, it's between reading and writing. It's not a graph. Um, and yet it's not just also a complete copy of something, typically. Uh, and, of course, notes happen in all kinds of fields. So, you know, merchants take notes. Um, artists take sketches. Musicians um, take notes. And yet I was only working on textual notes. So that's a plus, right? <laughs> Most of the kinds of notes. I'm, I really focused on were um, reading notes, excerpts and summaries from books that as, as these um, students or, you know, future humanists would take from their reading. Honestly, how to find them, it's, uh, it's really, I went with what I found. And I was very lucky to um, find some notes taken on slips that weren't cataloged as such in the Theodore Singer papers in, at the University of Basel Library, where you could see really probably the remnants of the composition method of his large book, in that these note slips probably weren't used in producing the book in the end for whatever reason, and they ended up then, I don't know how they were stored in the 16th century, but now they're tipped into a collection of letters that's been bound into a manuscript volume. So that was that was a real um, you know, a great moment when I came across those. And then similarly, the Conrad Gessner papers in Zurich have a few volumes of a work that was prepared for publication but never published. It takes the form of note slips glued into onto a sheet of paper, which would then you could just print from. Uh, so you really see what a a book uh, in preparation might have looked like, even though I don't have. Uh, obviously, that work was never printed. So I don't have any such notes for the books that I actually studied. Um, and perhaps not coincidentally, right, because the notes would be cannibalized into the making of the book. Once the manuscript is used for printing from, typically is treated as garbage and then wouldn't survive. So I didn't really have um, too much of a system. Of course, I looked, um, you know, actually some, some library catalogs of his old manuscripts uh, catalogs that are in bound volumes will have interesting um, index entries. So under commonplace book, you can find call numbers. And so I, I used that method successfully in, in Paris and also at the Cambridge University Library uh, to see a bunch of, of sample of, of specimens of notes. Um, so that's one technique. 
And then in the other case, I had Singer was one author I was interested in. So I just went looking around and, and that was also the case for Gessner. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are many, many other note collections out there uh, that I didn't work closely with. Um, and uh, I hope, you know, note taking studies <laughs> will turn up even more. <laughs> now- one of the things that really struck me about this discussion um, in, in the book is that you would think that um, a history of note-taking would be part of or would primarily be a kind of way to get at a history of privacy or the personal. Sort of what does an author um, notice about a book and what um, strikes that author or reader, rather, what strikes that reader or author to actually make a recording for his or her own personal use. But what's um, really, I think, fascinating about this process is that you show the importance of collaboration to note-taking, that the, that very much these collections of notes and the production of notes um, was something that wasn't just about the personal. It wasn't just about the individual. It was something that often many hands um, sort of had a part in, both in terms of production and in terms of use. Um, can you say a little bit about that, sort of the importance of collaboration to this history of note-taking? And, and what, how it is impersonal in certain ways, too. Right. I think we, uh, you know, in our sort of modern regime, which, say, Heather Jackson studies nicely in her book on marginalia, I tend to emphasize the personal response to a book as what marginalia, you know, as what notes do. Whereas in this humanist environment, notes are a training ground, a way of mastering your reading, of recording the good bits, the, the bits that struck you, the bits you want to imitate, the bits you want to reuse. You record them on paper so you can find them again. And because by writing it down, you will help record it in your mind. And so you'll be able to actually reuse it actively without necessarily even referring to your notes or by learning your notes by heart is another technique that some note takers recommend. So there is a kind of impersonal note taking, which is the, the sort of the ideal here. It's not completely impersonal, though, because every note taker brings their own judgment, their own sense of what's interesting, their own a uh, sense of what to use it for when they select different bits. So people will uh, emphasize that, you know, you're getting my judgment, and, and that's a plus, of course, with, <laughs> that you're getting uh, well-honed, uh, careful judgment applied in this reference collection. And, of course, note-taker, note-taking manuals will always say that you're better off taking your own notes because you will have better judgment than anyone to whom you might delegate the note-taking. But here's where we get into the um, the number of people involved in this process. Through that kind of don't do it advice, we know, and through other uh, through other evidence as well, that people did rely on others to take notes for them or to take notes collaboratively with them. So there are a couple of ways that happened. One is a hierarchical relationship between a master and a servant, a manuensis, who's hired to copy things to run errands, uh, but also possibly to read books and take notes for you. Um, and those could, you know, in that service relationship um, could actually extend to people who were, you know, scholars in their own right, as in the case, for example, of Gabriel Harvey, nicely studied by Anthony Grafton and Lisa Jardine um, in a 1980 past and present article, how Gabriel Harvey read his Livy. There's a man who's basically taking notes on Livy's histories on Roman history for the use of his noble patron, the Earl of Leicester, to help him better, you know, make decisions when he's confronted with um, moments that could seem parallel to uh, events in ancient history. That's the idea, right? You get someone else to read for you and to give you a distillation of the takeaways of that reading 
that can then serve you as a uh, point of advice. But there's another form of collaborative note-taking, which is really embodied by that note closet you mentioned, um, where the, the, the note-taking would be collaborative among equals. So, And actually, the first um, person who's credited with giving advice on this is Bartholomeus Peckermann, an early 17th century German academic, who recommended that students work together in groups of three to six, in groups he called collegia, and that they should be friends and not jealous with one another, and they should be of a similar level and have similar interests and be doing a similar course of study, and that they should take notes together. They should take turns reading and taking notes, or they should divide up the reading, but in any case, they will copy over each other's notes and end up with each their own set of notes compiled from what each of the members of the group had taken. And similarly, then the note closet, which is, um, you know, touted by Vincent Placius in 1689, uh, is this giant piece of furniture, not a cheap investment, uh, in which you'll be able to store notes uh, on slips of paper hooked on uh, metal hooks, each hook associated with a heading. So you can find it again and keep it organized. And that many people can contribute notes to the closet, and then many people could take notes out of the closet without jeopardizing the whole, just take the notes on the topic that they're working on, and then return them, of course, when they're done. And so he has this vision of this, you know, perfect, huge, and, and almost indefinitely expandable uh, note collection, um, which would be, and he's very conscious, which would be the tool of choice for say, the work of the newly founded academies. And he's very conscious of living in an age of um, these new institutions. Uh, and he calls, he has a word for the books that will come from these people working together. He calls them social books, libri sociales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, sorry, go on. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> now, this is this sort of this theme of collaboration and co-creation of um, of knowledge and information is really fascinating here. And it, it sort of threads through, again, in unexpected ways, um, sort of the, the next couple of chapters of the book. Now, one of the ways that I think this comes up really interestingly is in your discussion of a book and the, the increasing importance of reader agency in using and helping create this book that um, forms a, a centerpiece of both the next chapter and the one afterwards. This is the, a book called, uh, it, it's one of the Florilegia that you mentioned. It's a book called The Polyanthia. Am I pronouncing that right? That's good. <laughs> okay. um, now, since the polyanthia is so important to this study, um, and it's such a central part of the book, for readers, or rather for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, um, can you briefly introduce this and, and talk a little bit about why it's so important in the context of the study of information creation and management? So polyanthia is basically Greek, which means a collection of flowers, uh, many flowers, right? Poly and anthia. Uh, and it is the largest in a genre that is widely um, developed in the early modern period. It's first printed by a first published by an Italian grammarian, Domenico Nani Mirabelli, in 1503. And but he is uh, drawing on a medieval florilegium of 1306 by Thomas of Ireland called the Manipulus Florum. Again, you see the flower; it basically means bundle of flowers. And uh, he's taken the medieval text. And its headings, and he's and the medieval text is mainly focused on biblical passages and passages by the church fathers, 
And he adds a tremendous amount already in the first edition, taking it up to 400,000 words of other headings and other kinds of authors, including ancient orders and philosophers. And even uh, in the second edition, I think it is Petrarch and Boccaccio. So people who are post-ancient. And then over time, something like 40 plus editions, this work will grow by successive accretions, um, often by people we don't can't identify, but sometimes we can identify who added to it so that it basically uh, sextupled in size. And by the mid-17th century, it's 2.5 million words long. And what it offers you it is a trove of quotables, of sententious um, authoritative sayings attributed to an author that you can reuse in your conversation, in your preaching, in uh, your letters, in your orations. And this is basically an engine of copia, right? Copia is that ideal of humanist abundance. And here you've got um, enough to lard many a copious um, writing or, or oral performance. So the Florilegium in the Middle Ages was often probably a, a prompt for a preacher so that you could um, write a sermon basically off the cuff with uh, using a few of these entries as a point of departure. And similarly then in the early modern period, but the, the, the preacher is no doubt one of the users of these, of the, the Polyantea, which is, by the way, uh, slanted Catholic. Uh, and, but there will be other users as well, such as teachers, and we have a very nice description uh, uh, by Gabriel Naudet of a, a regent master at the University of Paris, whom he does not name, who, uh, you know, working in his study where he had 50 dictionaries and reference works, Naudet describes, proudly boasted how he managed to uh, create two or three pages of commentary on a difficult term um, in just a few hours, whereas everybody would think he'd spent days generating that. So that's the ultimate use of these books is as a shortcut. It offers you ready-made the kinds of notes you wished you'd been able to take yourself. Uh, but in their absence, you've got uh, the notes that someone else took, basically, accumulated and in print and sorted, and that you can use um, when when need arises. So the Polyantea is one of the, I, I, what I'm interested in is the way it grows over time, who gets credit for that growth, um, the language of more is better, basically, um, that, and the, the, the language of a, a good for the common Republic of Letters, a shared good for the Republic of Letters. This is all how compilers, of course, justify um, the, the great effort that many knights spent sleeplessly studying. Um, and, of course, the investment on the part of printers and readers in buying these things. But, but printers clearly made money off them. The, the best evidence is that the same printer will print uh, the Polyantea multiple times over. So he wouldn't do that if he still had old copies to uh, to get rid of. Right. And not only are these authors um, staying up all night, but as you, you give these wonderful examples of um, the other um, uh, the other kinds of uh, ways that people are 
at least performing in writing the the lengths to which they're going um, to create these works, including drink chewing on raw turnips and sand, I think drinking cold water, reading with just one eye open so that the other eye can have a chance to rest, and then sort of alternating them. So it's re- there's some really wonderful um, vignettes here, I think, or accounts of um, the methods of reading and the methods of compiling that were at least performed in writing um, by the authors who are um, doing this. Absolutely. The hard job of scholarship. That's right. <laughs> and what's also very striking about this is that although um, this theme of um, what what is there and abundance and accumulation is very important, you also point our attention to the importance of absence and forgetting and what's not there. Um, this actually manifests on several levels, but the one that I think um, is that's particularly interesting in this chapter, in this section of the book, and I won't ask you too much about this um, just to um, to make sure we don't take up too much of your time, but to, to signal this for listeners, um, you mentioned the importance of blank space um, and of layouts and of white space um, and the absence of color and the kinds of um, opportunities that that creates for um, creating new ways of helping readers find their way through a text as these genres develop. So that's actually, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that's one of the features of print after all. In the manuscript world, you can hire someone. It costs extra, of course, but uh, you get blue and red, um, you know, initials or, or uh, paragraph markings and things that draw your attention to breaks in the text using color. Print, of course, eliminates that, although early printed books were often meant to be finished by hand by coloring, and there are some cases of two-tone printing, but that's quite expensive. So basically, these reference books over time develop black and white ways of calling your attention to page breaks, and they use lots of a colorful, uh, not colorful, but cute thin thing bats um, of the kinds you'll encounter in your Microsoft Word menu, such as uh, the hedera, the ivy leaf, the, the pepper, the pointing finger, and that there will be a hierarchy also to the fonts used, the capitalization uh, of what size and uh, use of italics. Of course, though, I just want to emphasize that all these this concern about layout and about drawing the eye to breaks in the text is something really first developed in the 13th century in scholastic manuscript layout, ordinatio. Um, so they, too, use capitalization and uh, size of font, basically, of handwriting to, to make some of these distinctions, in addition to numbering and color. Uh, so print, in a way, is a loss, a loss of color, and then the introduction of um, other methods, also including lines. So actually, it's not just a story of the text becoming more and more consultable, at some point, um, the theatrum of Singer, for example, which is that massive 10 million word thing, really is interested in packing as many words onto the page as possible and sacrifices many of the more uh, visually interesting uh, formatting methods of earlier editions in order to just have uh, very dense columns. Then with lines and blank spaces, you point out, uh, and asterisks, those are the only tools it uses to show you uh, where you are in the text. Mm-hmm. Another really, oh, sorry. If that's a, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay. Another really interesting part about this, and again, I'll just um, sort of mention this to signal to listeners another um, part of this story that I think is really fascinating is your attention to um, not just compiling information together, but also taking texts apart. And there's this wonderful attention to the importance of physically cutting and pasting. 
um, especially uh, you mentioned Gessner's use of the waste copies on the print room floors of text that printers were um, were creating. But then those waste copies, he actually um, used them as raw material to cut and paste into other volumes where he was organizing um, information. So that was really fascinating. Yes, I think that that was uh, an unexpected uh <laughs> Boon uh, to this project is to see obviously the word cut and paste, uh, you know, is with us today, and uh, it doesn't really mean taking a pair of scissors and cutting a piece of printed text or manuscript and gluing it into something, but that's exactly what it meant in the 16th century. So, Spunard Gessner is actually someone who recommends indexing by cutting up printed books. He talks about owning two copies of the book, so you can cut up the bits you want to index um, and from both sides of the page. He doesn't talk about having a third copy, so you might be able to read the book again. So you you cut out these bits, and then you line them up in alphabetical order. And this is one of the ways he was probably able to merge content from many different books in uh, this book he wrote in 1548 called the Pandex, Pandecti, which were designed to be a sort of thematic index to all known learned books. Uh, So obviously that was quite an ambitious project, which engaged him in... Uh, you know, having to bring together material from multiple books. So it seems kind of shocking that here we are, you know, barely 100 years after the invention of print, the guy is talking about cutting up printed books. Uh, And so one of the things that helped this make sense was finding those manuscripts I described where, you know, the folio pages meant to be printed from have all these slips of paper in them. Some of them are manuscripts cut up, and some of them are printed books cut up. But the kinds of printed books they are do, at least in a couple cases, I think it's clear that they are books that were used to print from in the print shop. And therefore, as you say, they become garbage. And therefore, yeah, all Gessner has to do is sort of hang around, collect it, and then decide to store it in his nose and cut it up and so forth. So it's more a form of recycling than of destruction of a new book. Although, honestly, in, in that uh, advice on how to index, he doesn't talk about recycling. He doesn't talk about cutting up old books. He just talks about cutting up books. And I suppose if you want them to be new, you can do that too. But of course, he was also complaining about not having much money and not being able to buy all the books he needed. So I think the hypothesis that uh, one of the ways he proceeded was to hang around the print shop and pick up the, the discarded waste from a book being used, a printed book being used to print another printed book, as in a second edition or a later edition is certainly a very plausible explanation of how you end up cutting up printed books without damaging your pocketbook too badly. Um, so, but it's interesting. That's something definitely made possible by print. Um, that in the sense, I suppose that you can have multiple copies of something and expensive as they are, printed books are still, um, you know, sometimes um, expendable and, and new value can be brought from them by cutting them up. And that of course uh, is how this very large 10 million volume uh, tell million word volume was made, uh, the author tells us really quite explicitly that the printer gave him two copies of the old singer, the 4.5 million word book, in order to make the new Magnum singer, Magnum Theatrum, by cutting them up and rearranging them, those passages, and putting in many other, the contents of many other books. So he talks about that, that no expense was spared in giving him copies from which to work by cutting and pasting. 
That's so interesting because it really sort of emphasizes the importance of an attention to expendability and notions of expendability to understanding how this attention or that this sort of renewed um, emphasis on accumulation and compilation uh, manifests in this period. I, I think it's completely fascinating. And also this, um, these examples that you're giving us really demand um, a sort of shift in the way um, we think about authorship. Yeah. what that is and what that has looked like over, looked like over time. Yeah. Just on the extendability front, I wanted to mention the work of Ian McLean, mm-hmm. who worked on uh, the sort of learned book trade in this period. And he talks about how most of these booksellers were just, they had tons of unsold pages of books uh, and, and they would die with, you know, owning all this stuff, but the value of it is unclear. <laughs> you can't sell the book. Uh, you know, but your capital is sort of locked up in unsold copies. And so you would trade them with other people who might be able to, you know, sell them in their market because you've already, you know, saturated yours with this book. Um, but it shows how some at some point, basically, you have a remaindered book. You have a book that doesn't have commercial value anymore. And if you can cut it up and make a new book out of it, maybe that's just as well. On the authorship front, you're absolutely right. These guys are um, what we might call compilers. But they often on the title page advertise themselves as authors and they are very, um, you know, clear about what they're doing. They are offering their judgment and uh, their organization and they're rendering a great service to everyone. So I don't think they see themselves as mere compilers. And it's not even clear to me that um, contemporaries right in the 16th century see compiling as mere compiling. Uh, Over time, though, by the late 17th century, there is a whole language of criticism of reference works as, as just mere shortcuts and things that will bring down the quality of learning um, because people won't read the originals anymore. They won't appreciate, you know, what context a snippet came from that they're using. And, you know, that, that too sounds so much like the criticisms we get today of various tools we're um, adjusting to. And yet, they're making these criticisms of these giant Latin folio volumes, which now look like, you know, the ultimate in scholarship. Right. Well, and I don't want to, uh, we've taken up so much of your time and I don't want to take up too much more. Um, there's so much more in this book um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an exceptionally rich study. And I'll just mention for listeners, um, there's a whole chapter on the impact of early printed reference books and sort of a really wonderful discussion of how they were used in early modernity, the importance of marginalia and annotations, um, and lots of stuff um, that I think really um, rewards the reader. And so we, we haven't had a, t- a chance to talk about so much, um, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book um, in terms of things that we didn't have a chance to cover? Well, I think uh, you've been a wonderful reader uh, and thank you very much for these questions. I just, um, yeah, I, ho- I hope you enjoy the book and I'm always delighted to hear from, from people with their insights about uh, similarities with today or about other examples from the past, too, because I really just scratched the surface of, uh, we didn't talk about finding devices, the kinds of tools that these books come with uh, that would include table of contents, lists of authors cited, although they're not really useful finding devices, they're more a way of showing off how learned you are, uh, alphabetical indexes of multiple kinds, sometimes proper names, sometimes so-called Memorable words and things not mentioned in the other indexes. Uh, and um, 
yeah, and the different genres in which uh, this information is packaged, all of which do resonate with me, at least, um, as still uh, in our mental landscape, even if physically they take other forms today. Absolutely. And so what's next for you? Are you still working on, uh, has this project spurred or directly spurred a next research project for you? Or if not, um, what, what are you working on now? Well, actually, the question you asked about authorship is very much the line of inquiry that I'm pursuing at the moment, which is how humanists work together with others, hierarchically, as I mentioned, or not. Uh, on the other hand, I also have a project that I've, I've always looked forward to returning to, and that is um, basically the relations between science and religion in the early modern period, and in particular, the um, natural theology as the arguments for the greatness of God from nature. Mm-hmm. And in that, a subset of natural theological argument, which is generally neglected, which is the argument that you can demonstrate greatness of God, not just through the parts of nature that we understand, but also through the mysteries, the parts of nature we can't understand. And so actually what's interesting me right now on that front is sort of the arguments of the limitations of reason and how they too can be used in part as part of the natural theological argument. And they sort of coexist with rational arguments for the greatness of God. So natural theology has this bipartite form, really. Um, so I have, I have, uh, and of course, information as a theme is um, definitely still with me. Uh, as, as you may know, what, as I'm sure you know, when you finish a book, you know, that's when people become aware of what you've been working on. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily what, what everybody else wants to uh, hear about. So I, I really am delighted to um, have, a, have a number of fronts open at the moment. Um, and, uh, so in general, sort of history of note taking and information, although I'm not thinking of that as the object of a a new book is certainly a theme I'm always going to be, you know, um, or at least for the next few years, keeping an eye on. So the next new books would be the Catholic natural theology or natural theology through the mysteries of nature and, um, and authorship and co-elaboration of texts through, uh, the range of people who contribute to making a text. But that's a very broad formulation at the moment, so to be continued. <laughs> that's fascinating. And, and mentioning the um, Natural Theology Project also um, allows me to, to mention for listeners, um, we didn't have a chance to talk about this much, but there's so much in this book that's also um, just an exceptionally rich resource for people interested in the history of religion and religious studies. I mean, there's, there's so much attention to the use and production of these books by um, people who are creating sermons and um, and so there's, I think, a lot of material in there um, for people working on that field who may not otherwise realize that this is a book that's relevant to religious studies. So thank you so much, Anne. Um, this has been a, a, a tremendous pleasure. I mean, I got, I learned so much from the book. Um, I'm sure um, listeners are going to really enjoy it. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Thank you, Carla. This has really been fun. <laughs> You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.